coming up on Philosophy Talk. We are committed already to about a degree and a half Celsius rise. The moral cost of climate change. It's too darn hot. Just too darn hot. Why have we done nothing in the face of climate change? If we can decarbonize sufficiently, then there won't have to be much of a change in our first world lifestyles. But it turns out that we refuse to do this. Our guest is Alan Thompson, co-editor of Ethical Adaptation to Climate Change, Human Virtues of the Future. We have to begin adapting in more ways than protecting our form of life against more severe storms and these sorts of things, adapting ourselves to a changed world to live with. It's too Are we past the point of no return? The moral cost of climate change. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Pierre. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from Oregon State University in Corvallis. Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. That's where Ken and I teach philosophy. Welcome everyone to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today is the moral cost of climate change. Ken, we've really made a mess of this planet. We've chopped down the forests. We've burned all these fossil fuels. We're already beginning to see the devastating effects of climate change, and it's only going to get worse, especially if we pass the tipping point. The whole picture just fills me with gloom and dread. You know, John, you're right. It's really dire stuff. And you know, the thing is, we've known about this for decades, but despite that, we continue to burn fossil fuels at the same rate as ever. Worse than that, Ken, we've increased our rate of burning fossil fuels over the last couple of decades. The global community just can't seem to agree on a binding timeline to curb carbon emissions. Humans are hell-bent on making this planet uninhabitable for future generations. I don't, I don't want to go quite that far. I mean, I think that most reasonable people in their heart of hearts, they, they agree, they know we have a duty, a, a duty to our kids, to our grandkids, to, to pass on a planet where human life can still flourish. Well, if that's where most humans are in their heart of hearts, then there must be something wrong with the system. There's some serious inertia somewhere. We recognize our moral responsibilities on some theoretical level, but when it comes to making actual changes and actually living different, nobody wants to pay the price and make the necessary sacrifice. Yeah, call me a dreamer, John. Call, call me hopelessly naive. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not willing to give up hope. I, I still believe we can turn this thing around. I, I, I admit you're right. I mean, it's a complicated picture. There are major costs associated with changing our way of life and adapting to the emerging global climate. And, and it raises some crucial moral questions like, who ought to pay those costs? And how do we distribute the economic burdens in a fair and equitable way. Well, Ken, I always do what you say, so I'm going to call you a hopelessly naive dreamer. <laughs> okay. But at any rate, you're right. Somebody's going to have to pay for the shift from a fossil fuel-based economy to something more sustainable. For redesigning the infrastructures that might make us less vulnerable to the severe weather that's coming and, and already here. 
and for responding to the growing number of climate catastrophes around the world. Historically speaking, it's America and the other industrialized nations who've benefited the most, who've used the carbon that is contributing to the problem. So it seems like we're the ones who ought to pay. Good luck. Yeah. You know, it's not just that we're the most responsible for climate change. On the other hand, we're also, in a way, the least affected by it. I mean, we're richer than the rest of the world, and that allows us to adapt more easily to the increasingly severe conditions. Developing nations, first of all, they've never gotten to reap the full benefits of industrialization, and, and, and they're the most vulnerable to climate change but because they are least able to afford to pay for the cost of adapting to it. Well, this raises a moral dilemma. On the one hand, the first world has contributed to this damage, I think any reasonable person would agree, and reaped all the benefits. So it would be unfair for us now to demand that the developing world forego the use of carbon and, and pass up all the benefits of the sort we've gotten. How are they supposed to adapt to the changing climate if they don't have the technology and the industry to help them? On the other hand, the planet simply can't afford for the developing world to burn fossil fuels in the way we have. Morally speaking, it's a quagmire. It's a mess. You know, you're right. And it, I think this is a really big issue. And we really need to rethink our idea of development, root and branch. Not just, I'm not just talking about the third world and how it's going to develop, but the first world, too. We have to seriously rethink our economic models. Those models are based on you know, the idea of constant growth as the key to prosperity, which means ever more consumption. And, and you know, that's simply not sustainable anymore. But here's the thing, I have no idea whatsoever what's going to replace that old model. Well, there's a lot to think about. Can we realistically entertain hope for the future in the face of global climate change? What kind of radical transformation is required for the survival of human generations? Can philosophers contribute to this in any way? Is there some concepts we could rethink or reformulate? Those are hard and interesting and deep questions, John, and to help us uh, start thinking about them, we ask our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, to find out the price some people are willing to pay to live more sustainably. She files this report. This is how you make a sustainable latte. First, foam some local organic, very cold milk, stamped with an actual seal of sustainability to the exact right temperature, about 150 degrees. I love coffee. Then prepare the coffee grounds from the organic fair trade micro roaster down the street. Be sure to use a very expensive Italian espresso machine that cuts energy use in half by falling asleep when idle. Pour the milk and enjoy. Or at least that's the way Dimitri Thompson does it. Before we start the cafe, I went to the investors and said, listen, we're going to do the right way the right thing, and we will make the profit. Thompson's latest venture is what he claims to be the world's first carbon-neutral cafe, humbly named Noble Cafe. It opened in downtown Oakland in early 2012. Thompson's entire business plan revolves around reducing energy to bring the cafe's carbon footprint as close to zero as possible. And I'm not by all means, you know, tree hugger, somebody who, you know, sleeps on a piece of wood, and then, you know, I go in a hotel and I like to have a, you know, use three towels and, and keep the light on. But at the same time, I believe if I do all this, I need to do extra effort to offset that and to make the damage reverse. 
Thompson's energy bill for one month last winter was less than $600, about half what other cafes the same size typically pay. But it's not just about bills. Thompson says the stakes are high, and he believes it's up to wealthier countries to take on climate change. Because if we come to 2050, we will come to the point of no return. People in wealthy nations, doesn't matter if it's Sweden, UK, France, or US, they need to pay more because they made mess more. Thompson is not just counting kilowatts. The tables are made of reclaimed local wood. There are no display fridges sucking energy all day long. Organic quiches made from local ingredients sit on top of cold plates. Even employee commutes are taken into consideration. Every time when I employ somebody, I ask them how they come to work. If they are coming with a car, I ask them, is it five miles, how much gas they use, and, they will, and I will transfer those into the CO2, CO2 into the dollars. And that will be part added on top of my electricity bill that is matched to Parks of Oakland. Thompson donates about $500 a month to the Oakland Parks Department. It's his way of carbon offsetting on a local level. It may cost more up front, but in the end, Thompson believes his investment will pay off with long-term savings through lower energy bills. Bottom line is I am not nonprofit. We are here all in business to make money, but I believe there is a moral price to be paid. For now, it's too soon to tell if his business plan is actually working. Thompson says if Noble Cafe is still standing on the corner of Grand and Valdez Streets in Oakland a year from now, he'll consider it a success. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.